Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend and have had a good start to your week. Well, it's good to be back on the air discussing Paul Revere's ride. Today's podcast, we're going to be discussing about Thomas Gage. Not just Thomas Gage, but how about Thomas Gage's dilemma. Rather, I should say General Gage, because if you say Thomas Gage, that would lead many of us to think, oh, this is just an ordinary person. No, uh, Thomas Gage is actually a British general. But what I find interesting about this podcast session is that while, yes, we will focus on Thomas, General Thomas Gage, we are also going to talk about Paul Revere, because Thomas Gage's dilemma does revolve around not just the people of Boston, but it also revolves around Paul Revere and that infamous group. He may not know the name of the group in terms of its title, but the rest of us do know the group, the Sons of Liberty, or, as General Gage would like to refer to as, the Whigs, meaning men whom have no allegiance to the crown, men whom are against uh, Britain, not just against Britain, but don't, but do not like anything that uh, Parliament has done, like, for example, impose taxes on her subjects without their consent, basically Im- imposing legislation that has no proper representation, that is, sending delegates or representatives from from the colonies overseas to England to uh, speak on their behalf. And, of course, those who are not Whigs are Loyalists, or Tories, who maintain their allegiance to the Crown. So, anyways, our first lead-off question involving Thomas Gage, I should say before he becomes General Thomas Gage, that lead-off question is the following. Was Thomas Gage born before Paul Revere? And if so, how much of an age difference was there between both men? Well, part one of the question is, yes, Thomas Gage was born before Paul Revere. Historians know that Gage was born either in the year 1718 or 1719. Regardless of which year he was born, Gage would have been at least 16 to 17 years older than Paul Revere. Of course, whereas Paul Revere was born in what we know as uh, colonial America, uh, Thomas Gage was born in England. He was born um, in the south of England in a place known as Firle, F-I-R-L-E, that's how I would pronounce it, uh, Firle, Sussex, England. Well, where I live in Virginia, there's not a county, there's a county not too far away um, from where I reside called uh, Sussex County, and of course uh, Sussex has its origins uh, traced uh, back to uh, England. I find it interesting that uh, prior to Thomas Gage coming into the world, his ancestors had participated in a great number of lost British causes. Most notably, one of them being the Protestant Reformation. It turns out that a fair number of uh, Gage family members sided with Catholic leaders. And of course, when I think of um, England trying to restore herself to Catholicism, At the height of the Protestant Reformation, I think of Queen Mary, who went on to become Bloody Mary. 
And for those of you who are curious to know why Queen Mary would have become Bloody Mary, it's because she persecuted Protestants severely. And there's a famous beverage uh, that, uh, that is alcoholic that's referred to as a Bloody Mary. And that, that's how you get that beverage named after Queen Mary. But anyways, uh, back to what we're discussing, that, that yes, Gage's ancestors, many of them sided with Catholic leaders like Queen Mary at the height of the Protestant Reformation. But it turns out that a Gage ancestor became a jailer, that is, a head guardskeeper, to a prisoner who ironically would become the future queen of England. At the time, she was a princess, a Protestant princess, that is, Protestant Princess Elizabeth, who was Queen Mary's sister. So when Queen Mary dies, Elizabeth takes the throne in 1558. Well before Thomas Gage's time, but that's how far back Gage's ancestral roots can be traced in terms of being involved in lost British causes. You know, Thomas Gage, being from England, I, I believe it's fair to say not everyone in England, but those, those who come from um, well-to-do families in England, what is one common theme that well-to-do families in England have titles of nobility. So Thomas Gage's father had titles ranging from Sir William Gage to, fir to First Viscount Gage. I'm not sure about the Viscount title, but all I know is that whereas Paul Revere's family had no titles of nobility, Thomas Gage, coming from a prominent English family, his family has titles. So, let's learn a little bit more about Thomas Gage's uh, childhood. Well, for starters, is it fair to say that uh, children who come from uh, well-to-do families in English society, do they go away from home to study? Yes. So, Thomas Gage is a good example of this. Yes, he went away to study. At age nine, he was sent off to the Westminster School, where he studied for eight years and it was there that he became disciplined, hardworking, cautious, and serious. Well, that's a good way to mold an individual. When you get sent away to school, you need to make the most of your education. You are there on one hand pretty much to learn how to become a man. You're transitioning from boyhood to manhood almost. Here's a question that involves both uh, Thomas Gage and Paul Revere. Did either man share any educational similarities? Well, we already know that there are differences. For one, Paul Revere was not sent away to study, whereas Thomas Gage was. But it, ironically, both men do have a unique similarity in common regarding their education. Neither man attended a higher education of learning. Well, when I say higher education of learning, that's when I when I think of that uh, phrase, I'm I'm referring college or university. So, in other words, Paul Revere didn't go to Harvard. He didn't go to Yale. Thomas Gage, on the other hand, did not attend uh, Oxford or Cambridge. 
Of course, there are many other prominent uh, English colleges and universities in England, but when I, but if there are two that come to my mind, I always think of um, Cambridge and um, Oxford. So, how do Paul Revere and uh, Thomas Gage make up for not attending a higher education of learning? Well, Paul Revere's world focused on a calling for performing God's works, not only through vocation, but through other higher callings, uh, whether it was being involved in the church or to, uh, or to what we've kind of learned now about his uh, role in the community uh, beyond the vocation part, that is uh, being a part of the Sons of Liberty and uh, also being a um, pillar of his community by looking after those whom are struggling to have a say and not just so much in their own government, but whom are struggling to perhaps make ends meet. As for Thomas Gage, he found a career based on aristocratical privilege. What was that? Well, or rather, what would that be? How about being in the military? After all, if you come from a well-to-do family, one of your requirements is to serve king and country. And of course, in this case, when Thomas Gage is born... Uh, there is a king who is ruling um, England. Now, in 1706, for example, um, I do know that there was Queen Anne whom, um, who was on the throne, but after her death, then it became um, the starting line of succession of King George's, being King George I and on to the second. But, uh, but, but, but yes, in between 1718 and 1719, when Paul Revere was born, uh, King George III was not even alive. But yes, uh, as for Thomas Gage, uh, he had found a career that was based on aristocratical privilege, being military, where a king's commission was purchased for him at a young age. So if you are well-to-do, you have the right, you definitely need to be serving your country but you also have the money to fork out a commission. Now, this is something that most of you all might find odd in regards to my mentioning it, but it is worth pointing out. While the Massachusetts Charter was in the hands of British authority, did Paul Revere and Thomas Gage each have different pronunciations to the word charter itself? Yes, they did. We're going to find out here shortly why each man's different interpretation of charter or pronunciation of charter is important. Paul Revere's pronunciation to the word charter was the following. Listen carefully. Cha-ta. Okay, that's C-H-A-A dash T-A-A. So once again, that's cha-ta. General Thomas Gage's pronunciation of charter was chaw-taw, C-H-A-W-H-T-A-W-H. These differences in dialects also led both men to value English law and liberties. However, both men valued them differently. And that's not always for a bad reason either, but let's find out how both men valued English law and liberties so differently from one another. Thomas Gage, 
he he viewed English law and liberties based on the following that the rule of law itself centered on higher institutions okay and when i talk about higher institutions for starters how about parliament and then we could go to a head sovereign being the head of state well when i think of a head sovereign it's usually a king or a queen in in terms of uh, say for english um for england rather of course, in modern-day times, the head sovereign in England is Queen Elizabeth II, but in uh, Thomas Gage's time, it would be King George II by the time he has um, purchased his uh, commission um, with the, in the military. So the head, when I think of head sovereign during this time that we're fighting for our independence from England, it's usually King George III. As for Paul Revere, the rule of law meant freeborn people, or I should say natural freeborn people, have a right to be governed by laws of their own making from within their system. So in other words, freeborn people do have the right to be governed, but in order for laws to be enacted, there has to be consent. There has to be a proper system of correspondence where, okay, if the person above me is representing me, then he or she ought to go before me to say, hey, this is what's going on in the General Assembly, and I'm introducing such and such bills. This, These bills will benefit you based off of X, Y, and Z purposes. Okay, if these bills do get passed, then I have given my, and I'm in favor of it, then I've given that legislator or representative the right to not only just govern me, but the right to um, to um, pass laws that will, um, pass laws within the system that will benefit not only me, but others around me as well. That's my 101 interpretation of what Paul Revere's rule of law meant. But in other words, but it is fair to say that Paul Revere's rule of law does not revolve around a head sovereign. In other words, Paul Revere's rule of law could revolve around what we now know is a three-tier system of government that exists in the United States, legislative, executive, and judicial. Now, given that Thomas Gage found a career in the military, how did he come to view his service to king and country? Well, Gage blended well into army life and felt very good about its discipline setup. He also served well in combat. But, here's a twist of irony. It's one thing to serve well in combat, but it doesn't mean that, it doesn't always mean that perhaps you as the um, soldier or officer value war whenever going into action. In other words, so I'll give you an example. Between 1745 and, and 1746, General Gage, had, or Thomas Gage, he's not General Gage just yet, but Thomas Gage becomes a witness to bloody conflicts that he is a part of in both France and Scotland. And these bloody conflicts uh, resulted in heavy losses that the, that the British Army endured. While Gage survived, over time he began to have a um, genuine dislike of war. In other words, he believed in serving his country, 
but he was also led to believe over time that maybe there are different ways to pursue victory without resorting to violence and bloodshed. That's not always a bad point. But if it worked in one place in the world, that's one thing. But in another part of the world, you may not have the same kind of luck. I do wonder if General Gage over time, when he becomes General Gage, he will realize that that kind of uh, resolution in colonial America may not apply like it would somewhere else in the British Empire. While Thomas Gage valued his service to king and country, which included combat fighting, while he did value his service, but Gage as a military commander endured more defeats versus victories. I find it interesting that here this man has earned various promotions despite the fact that he's endured more defeats versus victories. How could it be possible that this man could be getting more promotions? How is it possible that he could be getting promotions when he's been defeated more versus coming away the victor? Well, it turns out that Gage is a successful officer at restoring the peace. He is also very good at uh, maintaining discipline along with a strict economy. And it turns out that by becoming a successful peace officer to maintaining strong discipline within the army or within the regiments he commands, people back home in England like that, most notably King George III. And who is who becomes King of England in 1760 at the height of the French and Indian War? King George III. He succeeds his grandfather, King George II, whose wife was Queen Caroline. And in Virginia, there is a county called Caroline County, named after Queen uh, Caroline. And we have a county in Virginia's northern neck. It's not far from Caroline County, called King George, named after King George II. So keep that in mind, folks, whenever you're traveling through um, through Virginia, most notably in the northern neck off of Interstate 95 onto 301, or going into Caroline County up Interstate 95 north. Did Thomas Gage ever marry? If so, whom did he marry, and what year did the marriage take place? Well, part one is yes, that Thomas Gage did marry. As for whom he did marry, he married an American heiress named Margaret Kemble of New Brunswick, New Jersey, on December 8, 1758. And, of course, the French and Indian War, folks, is still going on at that time. Margaret Kemble is the daughter of Peter Kemble, who is a well-to-do New Jersey businessman and politician. And for those of you who, probably, most of you probably know this, but when you hear heir, uh, that is um, a man receiving a, um, a title or a fortune. He's next in line to receive the, the family uh, business fortune, for example, whereas an heiress is a woman who's next in line ready to receive that um, fortune. There is a 16-year age difference between... Um, at least a 16-year age difference at best between uh, Thomas Gage and his wife, Margaret. Uh, historians know Margaret was born in 1734. That means she was born two years after George Washington, 
and she was born a year before Paul Revere and John Adams were born. Now, what a coincidence! What a coincidence that turns out to be. I also find it interesting that Margaret Kemble being born in New Jersey. Of course, we haven't gotten to the time just yet when the shots are are fired around the world, but historians will find out that many in New Jersey are very loyal to the crown. But I will point out this. I don't want to give all the secrets away yet. Margaret, But I will tell you this. Margaret Kemble Gage's name will be mentioned very frequently in this book. For good reasons. So let's keep her name in mind. Because she will play a very, very unique role. But there again, I'm not going to give all the secrets away just yet. Because if I do, then there's no point in telling it later on down the road. So, in 1763, the Seven Years' War, or what we call the French and Indian War, comes to an end. And Thomas Gage becomes commander-in-chief of British forces in North America. How about that, folks? Thomas Gage is now commander-in-chief of British forces in North America. Matter of fact, he succeeds a fellow uh, man for whom um, there is a county in Virginia named after. He is a very prominent man. His name is uh, Jeffrey Amherst. He would go on to be called. He would go on to uh, be called Sir Jeffrey Amherst. But we do have a county in Virginia, west of where I live, uh, not far from Lynchburg, called Amherst County. And Jeffrey Amherst uh, was a very prominent uh, British officer, and General Gage uh, takes his place. So if any of you all are wondering whom uh, General Gage um, had to um, fill in terms of vacancy, it's the, it, it was that man. He filled the vacancy of uh, Jeffrey Amherst. But, General, uh, but Thomas Gage is a man who does have connections. I mean, given the fact that he married a very well-to-do um, woman who came from a very prominent family, being the Kembles of uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Gage has connections um, throughout the 13 colonies and also in uh, the West Indies. He had, for example, in uh, the colonial America, he, um, one of his connections resulted in the acquisition of 18,000 acres of land in New York State's Oneida County, which isn't far from present-day uh, Syracuse. He also bought a plantation on the West Indian island of Montserrat. It pays to have connections, even for a man who's <laughs> on the British side. But hey, if you have the connections, more power to you. So, the bigger question we have now to ask ourselves is this. Uh, what was Thomas Gage's stance towards Americans considering he married one? Well, I can tell you this much. Thomas Gage likes Americans. However, I can honestly say that Gage likes Americans whom are obedient, law-abiding, and non-hostile, just to name a few examples. So if you are obedient, you don't cause any trouble, it just might turn out that if you ever were to meet General Gage, you might actually get along with him. On the other hand, though, Thomas Gage does not have a lot of regards for people whom are defiant to non-complicent. In other words, people who are non-complicent in his eyes are shaky. They are unsettling. They're unpredictable. And it's probably fair to say that if you were on the side of uh, the British, that of king and country, 
whether you live in England or, say, if you are a Tory in Virginia or let alone a Tory in Massachusetts, and believe it or not, folks, there were Tories in Massachusetts, you are going to view those on the opposite end as being the problem. That is, the people of Boston who are causing so much disturbance, who are causing so much unsettling to the point where if you are a Tory, you would probably say, you know what, I could care less if those people rotted in hell. Pardon my French, but this is where tensions really get high, folks. You know, Tories don't have a lot of room for those who are, um, for those who just don't want to adhere to um, the mother country. So by 1770, General Thomas Gage views the people of Massachusetts, most notably the Bostonians, as nothing more than bullies without boundaries. In other words, no matter what England has done in terms of, say, passing the Stamp Act, which got repealed, to passing the Townshend duties, which had, which where both pieces of legislation involved taxes, um, you know, here 1770, we've had the Boston Massacre, and then after the trials, uh, the troops were were uh, removed from Boston and sent back to England. You know, you would think with all these um, <laughs> these changes that have taken place, and some of them like the repeals, you, you would think that, uh, like most notably with the Stamp Act, that all of that would have made the people of Boston happy. The problem is that it still hasn't. So for General Gage he sees these people who have no boundaries. In other words, nothing we do to modify existing situations, is it's just not enough to satisfy them. Well, people in New England have different, it's fair to say that people in New England have different uh, faiths, not just religious faiths, but faiths on life. And that could present an even bigger problem that we'll find out here soon. You know, it's interesting, another fellow named Lord Percy, who was one of General Gage's subordinate officers, he came to America, and his attitude about America really changed uh, greatly after visiting Boston for a few weeks. <laughs> he went on to view the Bostonians as deceitful, to behaving cruelly, to having no decency or civility whatsoever. And in a short time frame, starting around 1770... British leaders, including General Gage, came to view one man from the opposition as being the most cunning, deceitful, and manipulative of them all. His initials were P.R., a.k.a. Paul Revere. So, the British now know about this man. I guess the bigger question is, do they have just one man to be concerned about, or do they have multiple men to be concerned about? I would think if you're the British, you've got multiple men to be concerned about. But the man whose initials PR definitely should be a top priority in terms of being vigilant on. Is General Thomas Gage best described as someone whom wanted to keep the peace in America? Yes, he did. He worked diligently on both ends by maintaining King and Parliament's authority abroad a.k.a. in England, to seeking resolutions on existing problems impacting the Americans. In other words, I think it's fair to say that Thomas Gage would have been the closest thing to a third-party mediator. The problem was that Gage had some very, very good intentions, 
The problem is that maybe he didn't have enough people around him who would have shared the same ideals and principles. And we'll get to that here shortly. Even Gage's enemies viewed him as a decent person with good intentions. But yet Gage himself was surrounded by issues that over time couldn't get resolved to his liking. So in other words, yes, he, would have, he, he really wanted the people of Boston or in Massachusetts, really New England, to come to their senses and realize, and, and realize that, hey, your current way of behaving is not how to go about getting any resolution resolved. You know, that is just, you know, setting customs collectors' homes on fire, you know, or, you know, tarring and feathering one or two of them to making personal threats or even destroying a Tory man's property being his business. That's not the way to resolve the problems. But what General Gage doesn't realize is that he's stepping into a bigger trap. He's stepping into a situation that that really just has no end in sight. So in order, you know, in order for the British Empire to be preserved, not just short-term but long-term, what did General Gage need more than anything else? He needs, for one, he needs strict authority. In other words, he's got to be able to maintain order. He's got to be able to find a way to somehow find peace or restore peace, restore civil authority, or any kind of authority in Boston where he's not going to have to worry about um, rebellion, he's not going to have to worry about um, anything that would put his people, being his troops, or that of Tory um, followers in harm's way, to decisive action, which I just mentioned a moment ago about with rebellion, decisive action, how about troops getting put into play or being put into station where they can put down rebellions or insurrections right away. My interpretation behind Gage's dilemma, being a 101 interpretation, while it may not be the best, it is the best that I can come up with to best, to best describe what his true overall dilemma was all about. From one hand, the perspective of this dilemma is the following. The inhabitants, or I should say the people of Boston, were to be properly treated at all times to where they shouldn't become inferior, that is, subjects without fundamental rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. General Gage does not believe that people's rights should be taken from them. On the other hand, though, what General Gage is worried about is the fact that there's too much leniency or too many lenient measures already in play. So the existence of too much leniency or lenient measures have allowed the people of Boston to abuse their fundamental rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, where they, take, have, where they have taken everything that has threatened them into their own hands. In other words, they're finding fault at every little wrongdoing that the British have done. Well, yes, I can honestly say that imposing taxes without the direct people's consent is a problem to quartering soldiers in people's homes without their consent and being forced to provide necessities. That is a problem as well. But did, but did uh, General Gage ask for the people of Boston to start 
destroying property all around them? No, he didn't. But of course, at the same time, he underestimated their he really under, underestimated their intelligence and their and their um, knowledge in general of the situation. So yes, existence of too much leniency, or I should say, lenient measures, did allow the people of Boston to abuse their fundamental rights, where they took everything threatening them into their hands without navigating proper channels of government. How about when I say proper channels of government? How about seeking nonviolent measures? in hopes that reconciliation could prevent the worst-case scenario. War, or even worse, anarchy. You know, government's hanging by a thread in Boston, but to make matters worse, if government doesn't exist in Boston, then yes, you could have a war. While Gage's intentions to restore the peace meant well from the outside... On the inside, from within the city of Boston, and on the outskirts of Boston, insurgents were everywhere from all corners. So what Gage doesn't realize is that he, this is the trap he's walked into. Yes, on the outside, his visions for restoring peace sound great, but now that he's in Boston, and he has set foot on the, um, on the people of Boston's shore, you know, he's going to uh, be faced with some rude awakenings that he's not only dealing with people in the city who know the city by heart, but he's going to be forced to deal with people on the outside. You know, that is people who live maybe no more than five to ten miles away from Boston who still have connection to the cities, to the city itself. So this really is a situation, folks, where, and I'll probably use this example again, General Gage and the British uh, army that arrive are like an elephant. The elephant represents the empire. The mosquitoes are the insurgents coming from all different directions, not just from within Boston, but from the outskirts of Boston. The mosquitoes are, are the Whigs, not just the, the leaders of the Whig party, but everyone else below them who share the same ideals and principles of liberty and freedom that Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, Dr. Joseph Warren, Sam Adams, John Hancock, and James Otis and John Adams all share. So keep that in mind, folks, about the elephant and the mosquito. The elephant representing the British Empire, the mosquitoes being the insurgents. Were many of colonial America's inhabit inhabitants residing along the Atlantic coast? Why is this important? Well, let's find out. Yes, many of colonial America's inhabitants at one time were residing along the Atlantic coast. But over time, large numbers of people migrated further inland before and right after um, the Seven Years' War ended, which greatly concerned General Gage. Moving further inland was often referred to as the backcountry. In the backcountry, General Gage, in his mind, or rather, Per his interpretation, the backcountry was the uh, tipping point where people became alienated from government. The backcountry, in General Gage's mind, was the break between structure and no structure. The further west people went, the, the greater they would lose, in his eyes, the greater they would lose their connection to where they originally came from. 
But General Gage doesn't realize that just because people live in the backcountry, it doesn't mean they've forgotten their original roots. There, there is a reason why people live in the backcountry. It could, for various reasons, one reason why I believe people live in the backcountry is to protect the, to protect the wilderness, to protect um, outsiders who would um, infringe not only upon their rights, but also infringe upon um, their national security or just their security, but people living in the backcountry are also protecting the city as well, the cities along the coast. Think about this too, folks. You don't want to place all your resources in the city. That is like, say, your firearms or your gunpowder. You might want to place that somewhere further away from the city so that if an enemy is trying to get access, they would have to go further beyond their means just to even come close to getting it. Keep that in mind. Did Thomas Gage disapprove of New England customs? Yes, he, did. he highly disliked town meetings, which were seen as too diverse and pluralistic where everyone seemed to get their own way without any true uniformity. In other words, town meetings catered to, uh, catered to broad diversity of people in uh, Massachusetts, but we also should keep in mind, too, that... Uh, Massachusetts is far more um, diverse in terms of religious tolerance than, say, Virginia. In Massachusetts, you're dealing with um, not just people of different religious uh, backgrounds, but in Massachusetts, um, I would say just before 1770, I do know that Massachusetts is very accepting of um, free slaves and even uh, there's a small number, there's a small enslaved population in Massachusetts, but it's not like Virginia. But Massachusetts does um, respect free enslaved uh, people to where they become part of the greater society and are allowed to take part in these uh, town meetings. But the people of Boston, most notably the Whigs, viewed the town meetings as the hallmark of their true fundamental liberty rights. This is where their voices get heard, folks. This is where they can um, make something known. You know, coming to a town meeting, you if you want something addressed, you not only address it, but you know that by addressing it, action will get done. <laughs> General Gage <laughs> viewed New England <laughs> as a country where all men study law but use the law to benefit their individual needs. He saw this as I, me, myself. Of course, when I think of I, me, myself, that's usually not a bad thing. It's, it, I usually see it as a bad thing, but in this case, it's not a bad thing because the men in New England are not taking advantage of the um, law system. They are using it while, yes, it may be done to benefit their individual needs. They are actually going out into the greater community and using what they took from the law itself to help other people who cannot help themselves. Who, are, who, who when I say cannot help themselves, they may just not be knowledgeable in a certain um, area. Did Paul Revere's work ethic, including God's calling, to perform good works have any meaning, meaning to Thomas Gage? No. Thomas Gage wanted America to remain commercially, or I should say economically, inde economically dependent on England. You know, if, 
you know, remember, folks, the 13 colonies can only trade with one country, and that is the mother country being England. England is dependent on colonial America's resources. And yes, there are still many in colonial America at this time who are dependent upon England's resources. After all, for example, folks, England can ship far more textile goods to the colonies than the colonies could ship back to her. You know, in London, for example, you could have 15 textile shops. In Colonial Williamsburg, you might have one or two at best. So if you have at least 15 textile shops in London, England, you are going to have a broader diversity of goods coming over to Colonial America that people can benefit from with a, a clothing perspective. That's not to say that people can't benefit from clothing that is making textile uh, clothing or textile goods here in um, colonial America, but it's going to be on a smaller scale of production. So, separation to gauge from an economic perspective meant that the mother country could lose her foothold as the world's strongest economic force. And he has every right to probably feel that way. So, when in 1774... When in 1774 do the Coercive Acts go into law? Remember, the, remember those uh, laws? or in, in America, they referred to as the Intolerable Acts. They go into law on March 31st of 1774. The Coercive Acts, they were a series of um, four pieces of uh, legislation combined into one. They led to the Port of Boston's closure, and as we all know, from a previous podcast that when the port of Boston closed, the new port um, went north to Salem. And of course, hundreds and hundreds of people were impacted by the closure of Boston's port. Um, Boston as a city was probably destroyed economically by the port's closure because of all the, you know, think about all the ships coming in and out of Boston with goods and people's livelihoods are not just so much dependent upon the goods. How about the rope makers? How about you know people ma- um, making the ships? Not just making the ships, but um, but just doing all sorts of jobs that go into making a ship. So you think about it, folks. It's just not one sector of the Boston economy that's in in shambles. It's all. It's it's the whole nine yards. And then if that's not bad enough, Massachusetts's government gets reformed, which includes limiting the number of town meetings. And then, last but not least, conducting all trial offenses now in England versus in the colonies. So in other words, you commit a crime in Virginia, for example, (laughs) even though the intolerable acts affect Boston, but... Even But now, if you commit a crime in Virginia, guess where you end up going? You go to England to get tried for your offense. Don't you think that's not fair? I don't think it is. I mean, why be sent 3,000 miles away for a crime that you didn't commit in England when the crime happened in your home territory? But this is also a way to prevent people from not, from not being allowed to have a fair trial in their home um land and by sending them to England sadly their voices will never be heard from again very cruel and unusual to say the least but i should point out this yes we've all been assu- we we've all been led to believe 
believe that Parliament as an institution passed the Coercive Acts. That is, members of Parliament came together and decided on this um, on these uh, sets of laws that would that would be um, that would merge into one piece of legislation. Well, it turns out that one man introduced these measures that became what we now know as the Coercive Acts. That was none other than General Thomas Gage. So remember, folks, Thomas Gage is the one who actually proposed these sets of uh, measures all in the aftermath of what happened in December of 1773 when the Boston Tea Party incident took place. So there you have it. Yes, we were very unhappy in uh, December of 1773. We were happy at the, over the fact that Parliament repealed the Townshend duties on everything except the unfortunate tax on the tea. So what did uh, the people of Boston do? They um, disguised themselves in various groups dressed up as Indians and dumped at least 300 um, chests of tea into the Charles River. Well, after that incident, and after word got back to England about it, that's where the, the coercive acts went into effect. Under the coercive acts, General Gage would go about nominating judges whom proclaimed loyalty to king and country. On the, other, on the flip side, though, there were many who refused to uh, participate as a juror, or let alone be a part of the jury process at the trials. And it just so turns out that amongst the handful of people whom refused to serve at the trials was one man whom defied, and his name was Paul Revere. So there you have it, folks. I mean, you know, yes, the British already know about this man based off of his initials, but yet he still remains ubiquitous, meaning that he's still seen everywhere. He may not be seen everywhere at every given moment or at any given time of the day, but yet he knows what's going on, and yet he gets asked to serve on a jury. But can you blame the guy for not wanting to serve on a jury if the if all the judges are if all the judges have already proclaimed their loyalty to king and country, to me, that's not, that, isn't, that does not constitute what's known as voir dire. What does voir dire mean? It's the process of selecting an impartial jury. So in other words, folks, when we have court trials today, the jurors must be impartial. They must listen to both sides of the case, the prosecution side and the defense's side. Of course, General Gage doesn't um, believe in two... Probably, he probably doesn't have the time to want to believe in two sides to the story. In other words, he just wants to pack ju judges whom, um, whom, just, whom are going to favor one side, and that is if being the trials where they go to court involving uh, Tories and Whigs, he wants judges to take the sides of the Tory. Did Thomas Gage know whom Paul Revere was by 1774? Yes, Thomas Gage knew about Revere's rides to New York and Philadelphia, including the first Continental Congress convening in Philadelphia that same year. What was General Gage's take on Congress? He viewed Congress as a body of outlaws 
coming from all directions, regardless of whether they're coming from New England, the Middle or Southern colonies. But he saw Congress as a body of outlaws coming from all directions, whom over time, in his eyes, would have nothing in common to where seeking independence from England would extinguish quickly. You know, he probably had his reasons to feel that way at first. But yet he really didn't know just how much smarter these people were than he ever would have given them credit for. Ironically, though, in 1774, only 12 of the 13 colonies sent delegates to Philadelphia. Does anybody know which of the 13 colonies did not send a delegate? Georgia, which was by far the most remote of all 13 colonies, and of course was the last to be founded, which it was in 1733 by James Oglethorpe. Georgia... The reason why Georgia didn't send any uh, delegates to the First Continental Congress was because um, the colony was fighting a war against the Creek Indian Nation. And if she is fighting a war against the Creek Indian Nation, who does she need uh, munitions supply from? England. So therefore, if 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 you're fighting a war, you know, you can't turn to any other country for assistance. You can only turn to one England. Georgia will eventually join the fray, folks, but that's going to take the work of one man whom, didn't, whom would go on to sign the Declaration of Independence, but his name was Lyman Hall. He was the man that dragged Georgia into this whole fray. If it weren't for him, I'm not sure who would have dragged Georgia in, but when you think of Georgia in the Declaration of Independence, thank Lyman Hall. How did General Gage wish to prevent an all-out war from breaking out? In the summer of 1774, Gage himself began planning a series of missions against New England's arsenals and powder houses. And when I think of powder houses, I think of a a magazine house like the one at Colonial Williamsburg that I see all the time when I'm there. The the reason for planning the series of missions against these arsenals and powder houses was because that's where all the munitions, or the majority of the munitions, were stored. So the purpose was to remove as many of these munitions or arms to where all, or if not all, a majority of New England's people could not make a stand. In other words, they would not be able to have the power to retaliate. And remember, too, that while, yes, many New Englanders probably do have rifles or muskets, there are probably a fair number who might not have access to that. So General Thomas Gage's mission is only going to be able to succeed by one element, folks, and that is surprise. In other words, he's not going to come in and say, surprise, uh, you're under arrest, or surprise, um, throw up your hands and drop your weapons. No, he's not going to do anything like that. He's got to find a way to orchestrate a plan where he can take whatever amount of British troops below him required to, he's got to find a way to basically keep the um, people of Boston and those on the outskirts of Boston off guard. He's got to find a way to throw them off when it's least expected. And 
he knows that the people of New England are very protective of their liberties. And one of those liberties will become our Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitu- to the U.S. Constitution down the road in 1787, or rather in, uh, in 1791, rather, as part of the first uh, Ten Amendments or Bill of Rights. How about the right to keep and bear arms? That's one thing that New Englanders are very protective of. And General Gage knew that many of Boston's prominent Whigs wanted him out, including one whose activities have been made known for some time to General Gage himself, that man being, one, that man being none other than Boston silversmith Paul Revere. So while, yes, General Gage has been our primary focal point of this podcast, Paul Revere is still not forgotten because... <laughs> It's fair to say that Paul Revere has become a thorn in General Gage's side, but he's part of a greater thorn, a thorn that will not stop growing, a thorn that will be comprised of insurgents left and right, not just insurgents, but other leaders like Samuel Adams, John Hancock, James Otis, Dr. Joseph Warren, John Adams, just to name a handful of prominent um, men whom will go above and beyond to fight for America and for her fundamental rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when I'm back on the air again next with you all, we're going to discuss about the uh, mission to, um, for in this case, General Gage's mission to try to capture the powder houses or the magazines or the arsenals. You remember what I said, folks, earlier about why about the backcountry and how General Gage frowned upon people living in the backcountry. He felt he truly believed that if people, you know, moved away into the backcountry, that they would lose their connection to government. Well, remember, folks, in the backcountry, you need to have a, a special place or two to secure your stash of weapons, not just weapons, but perhaps powder, you know, gunpowder. If you put all of that stuff in one place, like, say, in the city of Boston, it's just a short matter of time before the enemy will, will not only acquire it, but take, but take the whole thing over to where you have nothing left to, to defend not only your city, but the outskirts of your city as well. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and we have learned a great deal about General Thomas Gage, and as I've said earlier, we're going to learn some other unique stuff later on down the road about his wife, Margaret. Um, but we have learned uh, a great deal about Thomas Gage, and we have learned that Paul Revere is not going away and won't be going away for some time. So continue to fasten your seatbelts, and I look forward to being on the air again with you all next. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>